Episode 4 was recorded before the tragic murder of George Floyd. For myself and Sufia, we want to take the opportunity to say rest in peace to George Floyd and our hearts go out to his family. Black Lives Matter. All right, what's going on, Surf? How you doing? Yeah, not too bad, man. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, weather's actually not too bad in the UK at the moment, which is uh, it's a nice, pleasant change. Obviously, you can't really go outside much, but hey. Yeah, that's typical. The, the the couple of weeks you get nice weather, you're kind of confined to like what you can do and stuff. But yeah, we can go outside. The weather's good, but like a lot of the places, like the recreational places are closed still. So you're limited on where you can and can't go. So the beaches and stuff are, are closed. So, I mean, I guess that's part of the issue with COVID, right? The opening up process as they start to unveil like the next steps to, to get in society back up and running is like, how do you mitigate the risks of reopening these public places? Yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely decisions that I don't, I don't envy the government in, in respective countries countries you know, trying to make sure and, and states obviously as well um, trying to make sure that they do it in a way that doesn't put the public at large at risk so yeah it's not it's not an easy decision to make um, I understand obviously why these precautions are put in place in terms of stopping people gathering on mass but yeah getting back up to speed it's it's difficult right now to see what that actually looks like yeah and i guess it speaks to a larger point you know if these measures are, are unveiled to get things up, up back up and running public transport public places etc it doesn't it doesn't you know mitigate the risk of the virus right you know we covered it before but the reality is the virus is still a thing that will exist in the world and the idea of going back to normal society just means that the, the risk is still there and myself for one I, I don't feel any safer because the government has said it's okay to go outside you know I'm, I'm at a point myself where I am starting to slowly like you know incrementally get my life back to normal and I feel I feel okay with that I feel like the numbers out here in California would sort of uh, warrant those steps uh, but then I understand people who you know live with elderly relatives or people with Im- immunocompromised why they wouldn't want to do that but um i guess it speaks to a more broad point of how the government has dealt with it and i know something we've been thinking a lot about is how people's rights are being encroached upon as a response to covid do you think encroaching on people's rights can be justified by public health concerns i think some of what the government and you know what what's been in the news stories and, and measures they're looking to implement and some of them i would appreciate that to some people might appear a bit draconian you know we seem to re- be repeating, like history seems to repeat itself. There's a massive crisis. The government takes steps to mitigate risk by essentially increasing their executive power. They don't really put any sort of time constraints on when they, those powers are going to be sort of revoked. Then the issue resolves itself, but then now the government has this newfound power and they sometimes use it. When I say the government, they, they, they distribute that power to its, um, the authorities that sit under it, i.e. the police or local authorities or councils, local government bodies. And I mean, we see it in the UK, stop and search powers after uh, 9-11. You know, they were able to stop individuals in the street based on that horrific event that happened sort of open the door for um, them to increase their their power essentially over the public if passes prologue i do wonder some of these you know the legislation that the government is looking to implement in order to sort of you know flatten the curve or mitigate the damage that this this virus does i do wonder what's going to happen after that like what's what's the situation going to look like how are they going to abuse those powers in in response to to situations that have caused have had damaging effects on society like you know the example of terrorism is great right measures were 
introduced on the back of those, right? And I think for the general population, they're more concerned about their immediate safety than a civil liberty, which may seem uh, like something is easier to, to compromise on, right? I know, for example, going through the airport, taking your shoes off, of course, it inconveniences people. But in the aftermath of, of for example, 9-11, people can say, well, you know, it's only two seconds to take your shoes off. Um, I don't mind doing that because it's, it's for the public good. When something is fresh in the mind, like like a terrorist attack, it's easy for those things to... And given the hysteria around COVID-19, I think it's a similar circumstance, right? There's a mass hysteria. People are, are you know, rightfully scared and, and concerned for safety. But, you know, like, for example, over here, they're looking at you implementing contact tracing. Uh, so it's a way of tracking who you've been in contact with. So if you're diagnosed with COVID, uh, they can use cell phone data to, to track who you've been in contact with to kind of trace back or trace forward the, the the pathway of the virus. Now, you know, when you're trying to flatten the curve, et cetera, you could see why this is an important measure. But the idea of the government having access to your data is something that when this risk is no longer imminent, are we still going to be sacrificing that power? And I, I think that's something that, you know, a lot of people are just not thinking about. It's definitely concerning to me. Yeah, I mean, I, at the same time, I, I don't want to, I don't want to fear monger and sort of make it sound like we're headed to this sort of dystopian, uh, like 1984 uh, <laughs> uh, like future, but it's yeah. The concerns that I have, and I'm sure it's shared by many other people. It, if you're going to put these measures in place, the majority of the public, the majority of the public aren't criminals. The majority of the public are, you know, law-abiding citizens. And what they really want from government and local authorities is just transparency, basically. And it's like, and just an explanation as to why these things are happening and for how long they're going to be happening. And at work. You, you get asked to put a business proposal together or something. You'll be asked to sort of measure the impact or, you know, provide data on why you think it's a good idea. And then whilst you're in the project, you know, you have to submit data to say that this is, I implemented this change and it resulted in this impact. So I guess this is what people want. Like if you're going to, you know, if you're going to implement a, you know, some legislation in order to combat something, I think people just want the data to support it and just an understanding of how long that's going to be and what that's going to look like. I think that's really what it comes down to. And I think people aren't necessarily getting that. We're seeing that cases are going down, but they're still suggesting, you know, ramping things up in terms of, you know, facial recognition when you're leaving your house to make sure that you are abiding by, um, you know, the, the government guidelines that, you know, to stay in, stay indoors. And, and the police aren't necessarily being forthcoming with how they're using that information. So I think that's the concern for people. It's, you know, are these authorities being transparent of how they're using their powers and, and the data they're collecting on us? Yeah, but I think, you know, given some of the... You know, if you look globally, some of the governments have implemented these these measures and they have been successful, kind of um, justifies almost like our own governments using it, right? So like, I think South Korea was held up as the beacon of dealing with COVID, right? They were seen as the country that dealt with best. They got the numbers down quickly. They contained the virus quickly. And, you know, it was a big pat on the back of South Korea. And, you know, this is a, a society or a country that is very technologically advanced and the use of smartphone apps was sort of central to them being able to trace the root of the virus in the country so it's, it's hard for, for people to say like oh the government can't do this or shouldn't do this when it's proven to work right that's the sort of evidence that they base these decisions on right it's worked in x so we should implement it in y but yeah so do you think these sorts of situations you know with a public health crisis are they warrant the erosion of civil liberties do you, do you foresee a situation where like this can be justified it's kind of this just a situation 
situation we're in, isn't it? Somewhere along the line, we made the decision to allow a central body to dictate to us, you know, how we should behave more and more year by year, decade by decade, we hand over more rights to the government in terms of how they sort of instruct us. In this instance, they're organising people and, you know, set some guidelines to be like, this is how you need to behave in order to um, avert this crisis. They, we allow them to decide what they teach in schools and even how we should be raising kids. And we, there's more and more uh, responsibility that we quite willingly hand over to the government and expect them to sort of um, tell us how we need to behave we we like to talk about sort of um sort of social social rights and 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 uh sovereignty that we all have as individuals the way the system's set up is that we allow the government to just put forward these guidelines and we and we trust them to make the correct decisions and we follow them am i happy with you know erosion of rights i'm not happy with i, I think everyone should have um their own we as a society i should say have have kind of agreed that individuals should have a degree of sovereignty and a degree of human rights and government encroaching on that is kind of seen as a bad thing um but i don't know if it's going to if it's going to combat we we, we've clearly showed that ourselves we're kind of we're quite bad at sort of organizing ourselves and uh and and even following the guidelines that they've suggested so we're not really in a in a state to provide a better solution in a nutshell, I'm just saying that we've we've been pampered, basically. Mm-hmm. And we kind of pick and choose sometimes when, when we want our human rights and when we, when we yeah. don't. Like, oh, you know, oh, um, yeah, I'm kind of happy with you uh, controlling all the, the industry and, and, the, and, and travel and all this stuff. Oh, but this, but this stuff, uh, I'd rather I, I took a hand over. It, it's kind of, yeah. if you want, if you, want, if you, you kind of need to, you can't have your cake and eat it at the end of the day. We've, we've entrusted the government to... Uh, to look after our best interests um, and we have a system a democratic system that's been in, in place in order to 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 maintain that and I think people at the moment when it doesn't necessarily suit their their interests um, they like to sort of flag you know wave that flag of oh you're encroaching on my human rights I guess is I guess is the basis of what I'm trying to get at right yeah we've been heading towards more of a you know nanny state for a long time in the UK and I guess this is sort of um you know, a byproduct of that. I mean, we've grown up in a country that is surveillance is rife, right? CCTV cameras are everywhere. And I know that Americans that have gone to England have come back and say, like, oh, there's so many cameras everywhere, there's so many cameras. And it's funny because I do notice the, the difference in, in behavior patterns over here with the absence of the cameras, for example, on the roads, right? Like as a motorist in the UK, we've got a very, um, very measured, very safe way of driving, right? Whereas because and I think that's because of the abundance of cameras and the risk of getting caught for speeding and, you know, general surveillance in the US. I mean, I live in California and I could honestly say the driving here scares the shit out of me. The way people drive, <laughs> man, honestly, you know, <laughs> generally, you know, I, I'll be going 70 and a 65 and I'll have people in my rearview mirror getting pissed off at me for not going faster. And I'm like, wow, these people are just they don't give a shit, right? And I do wonder if that's because there is not that surveillance to sort of instill that fear of, of being caught for breaking the law. And it's a, it's a catch-22 because on the one hand, like I obviously value having safer roads and, and not being put at risk of getting murked on the roads by someone going 95 miles an hour. Um, and, and, I, and I sort of miss that adherence to traffic laws. But then on the other hand, I'm like, well, yeah, cameras everywhere is bad because of x and because of y you know like uh license pl- number plate recognition is is 
is creepy because they can see where you've been at all times, right? Um, so it, I think it's about striking that balance. And I think you, you're, you're right, man. It's like we have to find a way that the government is transparent about what they're doing, but then also putting reasonable limits on on the powers that they've they've gained under you know whatever circumstance. So like if they introduce something now off the back of COVID, maybe ensure that it is you know only applied for that for the next year right i think that would be a good a good measure and to to talk about what you said about earlier in terms of the social pressure pressure sorry that that there is in terms of i mean you spoke specifically about surveillance but you know a long time ago that used to be the community would put pressure on individuals in order to behave a certain way it would be like don't be a shithead in 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 the community because that's a bad thing we're all here together we're all trying to work together for the greater good and then over time you know communities got bigger there was more and more communities and we sort of handed over that community responsibility and um, structure to the government so the government is now the the community and they make the decisions on how we need to implement the, that social pressure as we kind of said on on the individuals they've chosen and and, it, and they're not they don't necessarily because it's such a big machine they're not they're not as sensitive necessarily to like you know the smaller pockets in society that might exist in a country or that might exist in a in a particular area that's a really good point because i think you know the idea of community keeping the community members in check is something that we've seen erode over time in certainly in the uk and and for me personally i think that's a result obviously one of increase in population size but two i think due to multiculturalism in some ways right uh, as countries become more diverse um you know that sort of co co community cohesion i think does does erode and i think people um are less able to relate to their neighbors and and there's a less like shared uh homogenous cultural norm right and it's something like, you know, I didn't, I'd never really, you know, full disclosure, right? For both of us, we're both like, you know, first gen, you know, Brits essentially, right? You know, we we're, uh, I guess, ethnically non-British, non whatever that means. Um, and and so growing up, I always championed multiculturalism in the UK and, and thought it was great. And, and, and you know, for, for a lot of ways it is, and what it's brought to the country culturally. Um, but obviously, when, when I was living abroad, when I lived in South Korea, and it's a country that's really homogenous, and there's not the diversity, the racial diversity, the cultural diversity that we have back home in, in the UK, uh, I really started to notice some of the benefits of uh, like like a homogenous culture, and it was just it was just a sense of like there's a shared norm, right? There's a there's a shared norm that everyone understands, everyone gets, and it's behaviors that affect the community negatively are sort of ostracized and and highlighted because everyone sort of is, is playing from the same rule book to an extent and um you know it's tricky because i'm not i'm not sitting here trying to say like trying to say kick all immigrants out of england obviously see you later mum. bye mum. Uh, <laughs> yeah bye yeah, mum. bye dad yeah, bye dad but, um, <laughs> but I, just, I i i do think is is something that as as we increase and in, you know head in that direction increasingly uh those sorts of issues are highlighted and, and yeah i mean something that kind of comes up a lot with um this diversity like racial diversity that i see in the us is like this exercise of power from a dominant race to a non-dominant race in, in society right so like you know obviously historically white americans have sort of you know controlled institutions in this country and you know i think it's fair to say that african americans have found themselves at the bottom of the social totem pole in a lot of ways and like that dynamic you still see it playing out all the time here the, the racial divide is really apparent a lot of the time and this is in a state that prides itself on being progressive prides itself on being liberal and it doesn't have some of like the 
the racial history that they have in the South, um, and it's still apparent here. So, so obviously, something that has really been in the news a lot recently is the, the killing of uh, Armand Arbery, who was um, a young man in, in Georgia in the state of Georgia, who was like killed by two civilians, essentially. And it's really obviously brought back up a lot of the issues, uh, the racial tensions in this country where like specifically black men are being killed and the perpetrators of those crimes are not being dealt with in, a, in what appears to be a just way. So I know you've obviously looked into the case of like, what have you gleaned from what you've read about it? I mean, it, for, first of all, I want to say that it's a absolutely sort of tragic case from from what it looks from, from the outset. It's just a regular dude going out for a jog and he was sort of apprehended by these 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 two men and I mean, yeah, it's it's absolutely tragic. It's tragic for the family of the victim. I can't imagine sort of what his what they're sort of going through, you know, loss of a child. Even like that is just it's uh, uh it must be hard for them. When I'm watching it, there's a lot of uh like you said, racial tension. As Brits looking at you know the news in the US. It kind of seems as seems as like par for the course. Like it's just there's a lot there's a lot of this sort of stuff going on where ethnic minorities are being mistreated by other members of the public or even the police, um, absolutely brutalized. You know, over here in the UK, it's a completely different story. Like, of course, that that stuff happens in terms of you know police, you know, stopping. There's a lot of um, sort of tension with certain communities, like the the Muslim community, for example, and where they feel that they've you know they're they're stereotyped or typecasted into you know being a terrorist or whatever. You know, being stopped by police and being questioned. Um, that stuff does happen. I don't want to you know paint England to be this uh, lovely <laughs> island. Um, full of you know where everyone holds hands and in unison and sings uh, Oh Britannia but for me what I'm trying to wrap my head around we talked about community and you know um, and I think that sense of community is a lot more apparent in the US in terms of you know you might live in a neighborhood and everyone particularly in some states I'd imagine the sort of community aspect is a lot more prevalent in an area like Georgia than it is in California let's say for example and these two individuals you know took it upon themselves to you know, it looked like to make a citizen's arrest and then felt that they had the right to take a ma- another man's life. And I think that's, that's for me, that's the hard, I think I try to remove all the context out of it. Like I remove all the sort of the race and forget about all that. It's that two men felt empowered to just hunt this guy down in a car. It looked like a hunting video. Yeah. It looked like it was like a hunt. Like they were driving a you know a large car. All both had guns. Like hunting this guy down. He was unarmed. He he wasn't. He only became aggressive when he was provoked mm-hmm. and when he was attacked. At least from the video. And it's just it's, that's the worst of humanity. Like to, to to be able to do that to another individual. That's for me the most difficult thing to to even comprehend the way that the way that whole situation yeah. went down that's just that's just my take on it but yeah so yeah. a couple of really interesting things that you kind of brought up there so the idea of community in, in a place like georgia where the idea of community is so closely built around the idea of race right it's a place that obviously has a long history of segregation i think the idea of community there exists in a very linear fashion if you are this you live in this neighborhood and you look like this and if you are that you live in that neighborhood and there's a real sense of like otherness in this country that don't particularly feel in in the uk you know so one of the observations i made when i first moved out here is is how quick people are to like advocate and advertise what they are and what they believe in and the best example of it is like bumper stickers on cars right no one has bumper stickers in england right they they might have a man united badge on their bumper right that'd be about it friends in the uk can talk to could they they can know each other for years and years and they won't even know the most you know you know intimate details between each other they could they could be friends for 
entirety, but they won't know. I think in England, you're right. I think people are less uh, forthcoming right. with that sort of information. Or yeah, I, I, that's definitely. Yeah, the I case, think it's, it's less. I think it's less uh, central to their identity. And, you know, out here you'll see, um, I mean, just, just reading off some of the ones I've seen that, that spring to mind, it'll be proud parent of an eighth grade honor student. It's like, okay, you, you want everyone to know. And be proud of your kids, be proud of your kids, but the, the need to put that on your car and let people know. I've seen people with anti-abortion uh, bumper stickers, right? That's a view that you want to let people, whatever side of the fence you're on about the abortion debate, the fact that you have to let people know this is what you believe in, it just, it's mind-blowing to me. You know, Ita I'm Italian-American or whatever it is. It's, it's a very, it's a culture that really focuses on the identity. And, and that sort of polarizing, identity-driven culture is is ultimately feeding into this sort of, like, fear of the other and, and particularly, like, fear of the Black community. Because of the racial context of this killing, and obviously, given the history and given the, the situation in this country, it's something that they do need to talk about. But more to the point, like you said, the cost of life, value on human life here is not, it, it blows my mind that for a developed first world country, the value of life can be taken so quickly. The abundance of weapons, and that has to play a part of it, right? The fact is that you know that uh, at any moment, especially in more gun-friendly states where you, you can be shot, and um, yeah, like their, their willingness to 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 go to the point of killing somebody who is unarmed. It's just, if your issue is the fact that they shot somebody, right, then you have to talk about gun crime. If you think that their issue, if, if the issue is that they felt emboldened to kill somebody, talk about the stand your ground rules in Georgia, right, which allows people to you know, essentially protect themselves if they feel that they're being attacked. So th there's so many issues that would have, that feed into this killing being able to happen. And then when you throw this the divisive culture, divided society, you know, it's a recipe for disaster, and we're going to keep seeing these things happen until those issues are addressed. No, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more, man. It's just, um, I mean, it, obviously, you know, living living here, so you see the news stories, and that's it's, it's quite prevalent here, but it's obviously not as close close to home. And for me, and it just seems so alien. Like it seems like such an alien concept that you're willing to trust hundreds and hundreds of thousands and millions of people with very dangerous weapons. And uh, obviously, I don't want to get into the whole gun debate because it's a you know highly contested subject. But you're right. It's just what do you expect? No, you get you give you give people, you know, this sense of empowerment. Um, and you give people weapons, sprinkle on a bit of racial tension, and then you're all scratching your heads like, oh, why are people dying? Uh, oh, this is really sad. Like, it's just, it, for me, it's just, it's so formulaic to me. It seems like very, and obviously sitting from here, the problems are very easily recognizable as to why these things keep on happening. But for whatever reason, steps aren't necessarily being taken in order to prevent them. The, the fact that, you know, two individuals felt it, it was necessary to hunt down somebody and kill them. To me, it's just, it's just baffling. It's upsetting as well. Yeah, and we're not under any illusions here, right? Banning guns is not going to stop racial attacks or racially motivated or or incidents that have a racial undertone to them, right? That's not going to. That's not what we're saying. But the reality is, if, if these mm. people don't have the the resources to to fucking shoot somebody at point blank range then people are not going to die like this. To sit down here and talk about the, the the sources and causes of racism is just obviously beyond the scope of this podcast for now. The the fixation on on taking life. Like I said, I'm not going to sit here and, and, and rag on America because I might get deported. But... <laughs> <laughs> but you know, in, in some ways, it's a, it's an amazing country. But in other ways, man, you just you get a sense of like they're so far behind society-wise. Scares me sometimes, man. 
how how many how many cases i mean we can we can google it now like how, how many cases have there been of like this eric gardner yeah like cases like that or the trayvon martin the list goes on and on uh, of like instances like this that and then obviously everyone's upset at the time and everyone rallies and you know talks about you know steps that need to be taken to avoid situations like this but then it kind of just reverts back to whatever it was before and uh that that momentum seems to die for whatever reason and it- we're not we're not sitting here you know i'm not accusing these men of anything right the question over whether or not they they killed Ahmad Arbery. Is not for debate. We've seen video of it. They, they obviously killed this man. The thing that is so um, mm. shocking about it was the the fact that the local authorities didn't prosecute these men, right? And, and so it was deemed it was deemed that the killing was was lawful and justified. So it's, it's it's two issues. It's one the fact that they feel emboldened, you know, and they have the resources to kill somebody. But then on the other hand, that the, the, there are states that have mm. these like stand your ground laws which essentially are giving people a license to to take a life without facing the repercussions that they they might need to. And now, of course, there's instances where you're forced to protect your home. And, you know, those those cases can't be overlooked because they do matter when people are trying to protect their property and their family. But, you know, I, I think it's given a lot of people free reign to, to kill people. And in this case, it's, it's sort of intersected with this really prevalent uh, racial history in the US. So for us, you know, speaking for both of us, um, now that we do a podcast, I refer to everything as us. Um, but, you know, we obviously both have a legal education. And I think we do have a tendency to see things in in quite a from a legal perspective, right? So, you know, with this incident that we're talking about, I can foresee a situation where these men are acquitted, because the law is the law. And if and if the people that whose job it is to, to seek justice, determine that, okay, based on the circumstances, based on the situation, this was a lawful killing, then that is the law. But it doesn't detract from the bigger issues at play here and i think sometimes it's hard to talk about these issues in a black and white legal sense when there is so much uh, emotive conversation around it yeah so yeah. i mean the, the reality is even though these men have now been charged with killing this man there's no guarantees that they're going to go through the legal system and, and and be convicted right um and we've seen it multiple times in situations where police officers and civilians have killed people you know most notably the trayvon martin case of george zimmerman these, some of these states have a stand your ground law, which essentially means that you're permitted to use lethal th- force against a, a threat or a perceived threat. And even to the point that if you feel, you know, if it's easier for you to retreat or if retreat is possible, you can still enact the stand your ground defense. So if, if, if these men have lawyers that can prove this or show that their clients were in fear of their life, they could walk. First of all, I agree with at least having something in place entrenched in law that allows individuals to, when they feel threatened, they can take preventative measures in order to to try and ev- you know try and evade, or if they have the if they have the capability to defend themselves. A hundred percent, I agree with that. What I don't agree with uh, with what you just said there is because what you said was even if the perceived threat could be avoided or you could, you know, leave the situation without using dramatic force or dramatic, you know, that person suffering, you know, repercussions like death. I just, I can't agree with that. And this is, obviously, I don't want to sit here on, you know, (laughs) drinking my, uh, drinking my Tetley tea and uh, eating my scones from over here to the UK and telling Georgia state how it needs to govern itself. But there's obviously something wrong because this is a news story. You know I mean, because if um, from what you said there, they're enabling it. They're all, they're almost saying like, hey, yeah, we give you the right to kill whoever. And what what is a perceived threat anyway? And how do you even uh, define that? How do you, you know, I, I could be perceived yeah. threat, someone looking at me funny or, you know, they're, they're walking towards me a certain way or, you know, this, this, this is all 
subjective you know perceived threat that's quite subjective like you know and then to allow someone to have you know respond to a situation like that even by killing someone or you know in order to defend yourself yeah it just seems disproportionate um and, un- and unreasonable so it's very difficult to wrap my head around because <laughs> it's just uh, even if he went into this house and robbed it and he was a burglar and he did, did all this stuff even then even then i don't think he should have been subject to something like that do you know you know what i'm saying like even if he even if this guy was a criminal and he did commit a crime i still don't agree with him being hunted down and and killed so it's a really interesting point about what is a threat right because i think you know in a, in a in a place where the fear of the black man is so prevalent like it is in the south of america because it's it's just entrenched in in history there just being a, a an athletically built young black man could be a perceived threat Sorry, obviously sorry. yeah like a really a really sad sad case and i hope that justice is, does prevail in this instance um and yeah i think the the bigger issues is is this something that is going to continue happening in this country until some of these issues are addressed <laughs> So I know, I know we gave our listeners yeah, yeah. a whole bunch of fight talk in the last week, um, and we are, you know, essentially going to stay away from it. But there is a, a story in the news that is really blowing up the fight world, and that is the, the footage of the one and only Iron Mike Tyson back in training, looking very svelte. So I mean, you know, the word, the rumor is, or the word on the street is that he is looking to make a comeback. Right? Are we to take this seriously? Can we expect to see him make us, you know, a real run at any sort of heavyweight success, or is this just a flash in the pan publicity stunt? First of all, I am a massive fan of Mike Tyson. I've watched, you know, all the documentaries about him. I've watched his. Um, admittedly, I haven't been listening to his his podcast, but I will. I will. I will. That's the rival, bro. It, That's the rival. Into that. That's yeah. the, <laughs> that's it. The hot box, the hot box uh, podcast. In his time, for those of you who don't know, I mean, if you if you've been living under a rock and you don't know who Mike Tyson is, think of the Coliseum days when you know people would be gathering around waiting to see someone get absolutely murked. That that is what a Tyson fight was. People would tune in around the world to watch. A destruction basically and he's at one point he was considered the most you know dangerous man on the planet you know the scariest man on the planet we've seen tyson after his boxing career he's he's now a completely different man in terms of his uh his attitude his persona and i think he he would even admit to his you know to 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 his fans that like that person tyson is he is no longer recognizable to him in his prime he was what between his age of 20 and uh and in his late 30s his mid 30s so to him, he, he he probably doesn't even recognize himself. And to hear that he's, you know, making a comeback. We see that the fighters do this quite a lot. We see them, they miss the fame and fortune. They miss the attention, the spotlight being on them. Or they miss the, you know, the income stream. I, it, doesn't, it doesn't strike me that Tyson is someone who's strapped for cash. Because, you know, he's got a lot of fingers and a lot of pies at the moment with the podcast and his old, his old weed, um, cannabis farms mm. and ranches that he's, that he's involved with. So I don't know how much of it is for money. But, I mean, for me, I'm happy with the freak show stuff. Like people coming in, coming back and you know fighting other people i'm happy to get down and dirty with that sort of stuff like to watch the freak show stuff from time to time but for me i I watch sport for highly athletic gifted individuals competing against each other and they're the best in their domain that's why i watch it something like this i guess is fun but it's also dangerous as well like he's he's you know how old is he like 50 50 odd like he he he, 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 you know he looks like a tremendous shape and he looks like he can obviously still throw a punch but i don't know how i feel about it i guess it's a little bit of me is excited but there's a there's a there's a little 
voice in my head that's like, is this a good idea? Should you yeah. be, should you be encouraging this? Should so, you be? So I'm, I'm on the other end of the, the spectrum in terms of um, his rationale for the decision. I actually do think a lot of it is financial. You know, it's been well publicized how much of a uh, fortune that Mike Tyson squandered throughout his career. And I think if he makes even five million from a comeback fight, which I think is a conservative estimate, that's still five million dollars. I think, yeah, he might have a, a few business ventures going on, but and is there ever too much money? And I think it is a, it's a solely financially motivated decision. You know, and look, people are talking about the age. I mean, we've seen older people come back into the game. George Foreman famously came back well into his 40s and recaptured the heavyweight title 20 years from his last reign, right? And he had a successful comeback and, you know, rode off into the sunset. George Foreman was the pastor of a church in that time. Mike Tyson was not living a clean lifestyle for a lot of that time. He's got years in his body, I think, from from the, the lifestyle he led. So I don't think making that comparison, you know, is completely linear. Of course, Bernard Hopkins boxed into his 50s. And again, he lived like a monk. So I do worry about the safety of Mike Tyson. And I don't want to see him come back. So if I, I don't have any... I don't have any interest in it. If he's going to come back into the game, have a have an exhibition against Evander Holyfield, great, cool. You know, two older guys put on there. They'll they'll throw some punches, do eight rounds, great, fine. Well, you're going to jump jump back into the heavyweight division and, and make a run at the title. You're going to fight Tyson Fury. You're going to fight Deontay Wilder. It's, it's not something I want to see. The the sport has evolved to a point now that I don't think you know a five foot ten heavyweight is even. Is there even a path to victory against some of these elite heavyweights? Yeah, no, I, I'd agree. I mean, if this is completely painted as a uh, a one and done, flash in a pan, you know, fight between another person who's like an Evander Holyfield or a uh, you know another uh, slightly advanced retired fighter, I don't know. And as long as it's all sanctioned by a commission and they pass, you know, they pass the required health checks and all that stuff, I guess I don't, on the face of it, have a problem with it. Where I do have a problem with it is when they start saying like. I'm back and I would knock out Ty- I would knock out Tyson Fury and I'd knock out Deontay Wilder. It's like, listen, like maybe in percentage chance of that happening is like one in seven trillion, maybe. But like that's where I start to lose interest. It's when I mean I don't I don't I'll tune in because I'm a fan of Tyson and am I interested? Not really. Like I'm not I'm not really interested in the outcome. I guess where I have the problem is when they 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 paint it as if they're they're back in the division and they and they and they're in the same sort of discussions as these some of these elite heavyweights like a like an Anthony Joshua like a Deontay Wilder like a Tyson Fury because I mean that's just simply not the case like then it's it's not a competition um, that, that's the promotion game though isn't so, it so you know that's that's to drum up interest yeah. in their return you know and you've seen it's, mm. you know have you ever seen a six punch combination be played as much as this this viral video of Tyson hitting pads. People have said to me, Tyson's back, he's looking great. He looked great for six seconds. I look great for six seconds. I could punch pads for six seconds. Do you know what I mean? So, like, you know, and, I, and listen, I'm sure he, a lot of his, his, his... Tyson was never the most cerebral fighter as well. It's not like he's in a coming in, he's a slick defensive fighter. Listen, Floyd Mayville, you come back at 55, I say he could still do it. But Tyson's not known for being this, like, you know, super slick, stick and move type fire. He's going to get in there and he's going to try and have to get on the inside against these bigger heavyweights. That the the social media is booming. People are talking about it, and he has to pose it as you know, I'm, I'm making a run, I'm making a comeback. But the reality is, I think if you know the sport, you know where we're at with this one, right? Yeah, exactly. But you know, it's the uh, and I get hate to use the word filthy casual fans, but that that's that's the people who are going to be fueling this. It's um it's the same as the McGregor Mayweather fight, isn't it? It's like it's these freak show events and. The promoters do an absolutely. I'm kissing the kissing the Italian the Italian kiss of the fingers. They do an absolutely fantastic job of um, 
making fans believe, like Brendan Sharp, making the fans believe that McGregor has a chance against a Floyd Mayweather, that uh, Tyson has a, you know, has a chance against a, a Deontay Wilder. They do an absolutely brilliant job of it. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, if you, if, you, if you know the sport and, and you watch the sport and you saw Tyson get knocked out by Danny Williams uh, at the end of his career, um, granted, he's not, you know, he wasn't motivated and he even admitted himself. I think he even said the comment, like, I wouldn't disgrace the sport of boxing by losing to these type of fighters. I think he actually said something similar to that when he was in the ring just you know just before he retired from from the sport you know so someone who made a comment like that and then now is coming back you know to face to face off with someone it's at the end of the day the the, the bag you know the money is the most important thing for a lot of people and i mean you know legacy is something that you, you either care about or you don't but uh, i just hope that tyson doesn't put his health at serious risk by getting back in the ring but yeah man we'll see we'll see how this plays out i guess at a time when there's no competitive sports and everyone's just glued to their phones all the time it's a great time to announce anything so We'll see how this plays out with Tyson. All right, Lewis. Well, another one in the bag. This has been slightly more diverse than our you know, previous chat around UFC 249. But all the fun is still the same. It's great being able to sit down and flesh out some of these bit more um, difficult subjects with a lot of moving parts and, and complexity. So, yeah, I mean, obviously now, I mean, the podcast is pretty much everywhere. Uh, it's on Twitter, it's on Instagram, it's on YouTube, it's on Spotify, it's on Apple Podcasts. It's, you know, we've, we've, we've tried to make it as widely available as possible. There's no excuses there. Exactly, that's it. So, you know, there's absolutely no excuse for us to not have a million views. <laughs> oh, no, if, if you're my friend on any social media platform and you don't follow or subscribe to the podcast, lose my number. Like, there's, there's nothing else to say about it. I, I, I don't respect those people. <laughs> <laughs> But, but yeah, no, honestly, like you said, we're available everywhere now for Yogs, pretty easy to find. So, you know, all those subscribes, all those reviews, all the feedback really helps the show because we're trying to build this into something better. So, um, yeah, please, please do get involved on that one. Um, and we are looking at bringing video into the podcast very soon. So like, keep, keep, uh, keep watching this space. And yeah, this has been a lot of fun. I'm off to go and get my first ever tattoo. Um, I'm actually getting the Four Yogs logo tattooed on my back because I, I rep the gang that hard. Oh, you're about four years on your face. <laughs> yeah, my mum was like, "Lewis, what are you fucking doing?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, well, uh, I hope it goes well, man. Be sure to uh, keep me in the loop of what it looks like. Send me a before and after. Um, my leg before tattoo and my leg after. Yeah, please do because I forgot what your leg looks like by now. <laughs> so yeah, if you could just if you can send me a picture before and after, that'd be great. Um, like we said been a lot of fun and we're going to try keep on churning out as much content as possible and uh until next time i guess thanks for tuning in back with episode five next week till then stay safe from me lewis in california and from me sufian in the uk peace until next time (laughs) peace is so played out peace (laughs) Peace. with the echo peace peace peace. (laughs) yeah all right brother take care of yourself yeah Thank you.